You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Zach Shore, who is a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School and also the author of a bunch of books. Blunder, Why Smart People Make Bad Decisions, uh, another one called A Sense of the Enemy, The High Stakes History of Reading Your Rival's Mind. And you have a new book coming out. What's the new book going to be called? That's called This Is Not Who We Are, America's Struggle Between Vengeance and Virtue. Okay, so I haven't had a chance to check that one out yet, but hopefully we can talk a bit about it. Listen, I teach strategy in a business school. You know, I like to say that strategy is... It's kind of the art of decision-making, but in a world where you've got other decision-makers who are sometimes in alignment with your interests and preferences and goals, but perhaps more often in conflict with those preferences and goals. And, and I like to say that, you know, strategy is the domain of, of business and, and sports, but also politics and war. And in my classes, I generally stay away from those examples. I focus on business examples. But in your teaching, you obviously have to spend a lot of time talking about politics and war. It seems like there are similarities in our projects in that we seem to think, I mean, the whole premise of our job is that we can teach people to become better strategic decision makers. And I think there are some people, I think you quote Isaiah Berlin, who said that you either got it or you don't got it, <laughs> so to speak, right? You either got the gift of uh, political intuition or you don't, which makes me wonder what Isaiah Berlin was doing, hanging out with all those politicians, right? Just kind of observing. I mean, I guess he wasn't coaching, but is it true? Do you think that, that we can teach, uh, decision makers to be better strategic decision makers? I think Berlin was a brilliant thinker, but on this one point, I believe he was wrong. I think we really can teach people to think better and more strategically. That's what the books try to do. And I've tried to do that in my classes. I teach military officers, mid-career, so captains, uh, majors, captains, uh, lieutenant colonels. And I find that they really do come around to new ways of thinking. That's maybe sounds a bit grandiose, but sometimes at the end of a, of a teaching semester, they'll come up to me and say, sir, you know, I just, it's, it's not just that they didn't know this information before, whatever we've been covering, but ways of approaching a subject are so important. Yeah, but you do it through the teaching of history. And, you know, my training is in history as well. And, uh, of course, when I teach strategy, I use the, the case method. Historians, they seem to focus on the, on the unique cases, right, on the individual cases. And as soon as you try to create generalities, then you're kind of in the realm of science. And then you're thinking about psychology and you're thinking about economics and that sort of thing. What's the value of, of history and historical examples? Because, you know, you're working backwards. Aren't you going to necessarily fall into the trap of hindsight bias? Not if you're careful. If you're conscious of it, I think we can avoid it. And I think you're, you're right when we say the social sciences have a great added value in that they can isolate variables in carefully controlled laboratory experiments. But the downside of that is that it's not real world. It's not how people actually function in the real world. And what historians can do is look at how people really behaved under extreme pressure with all of the many variables that they had to confront. You know, maybe they had a 
something happening in their personal life that was challenging. It's something, other pressures at work that weren't related to the decision that we're focused on. When you look at the whole range of what people go through and then try and understand how they made decisions, you get a very different perspective. And I think historians can, can bring a lot to understanding how we think when we look at that real-world circumstance. Yeah, I mean, I think part of your argument is that one of the fallacies that a decision-maker can fall into is this belief that there are these kind of broadly applicable general rules in the sense that kind of everybody's following the same playbook. I forget which fallacy that was. Was it the cure-allism? I think you had a, you That's had a one term. of them, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, right? And so mm-hmm. it's sort of balancing the general and, and the particular. I think in international relations, I mean, you think about like the realism school, right? I mean, it seems like the realism school is an attempt at a general theory, a broad-based explanation for, you know, why actors behave the way they do. How common is that fallacy as opposed to the fallacy that every situation is different? We have a problem right now, actually, with a realist interpretation of the war in Ukraine. There's a political scientist named John Mearsheimer at Chicago, and he's been described by others as an ideologue. And I think that's what happens is when people get so wedded to their particular mindsets, and he has a very rigid worldview, and he says that it's the West that's entirely responsible for Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's all the West's fault. I completely disagree. And I think most most scholars and <laughs> people who follow this would, would also disagree. doesn't mean that the West played no part and that some of its decisions were unwise, but I think Putin is, is overwhelmingly responsible for this crisis. He didn't have to invade. So part of the problem is that people get absolutely stuck in rigid mindsets. And what I tried to do in Blunder was break them down and create a topology of what those rigid mindsets were. I call them cognition traps. And each chapter of the book, I tried to show how different decision makers over time fell into that particular rigid mindset. Curalism was just one of them. The idea that you have a a solution that works well in one situation, and then you insist that it must work well everywhere and apply it to every situation. And that's when the disaster has come. Yeah, I want to dig into what's happening in the Ukraine. But I think one of the things that you're trying to emphasize is the importance of strategic empathy. And you didn't use the term game theory really at any point in either one of your books, although I know that it's sort of in the background of a lot of what you're discussing. And I had a colleague, John Morgan, who recently passed, who taught game theory at at Berkeley, and I teach the same class now. And he said that class is really one in empathy. And if you want to make better decisions that involve others, you've got to really kind of understand them. And and it's about understanding not just their preferences and their beliefs, but the, their their constraints and so forth. And I mean, this seems to be an important part of politics in general. Is there any correlation, do you think, between one's capacity for this kind of strategic empathy in, in domestic politics and the kind of international relations that you're talking about? I mean, why are these two disciplines often thought of as as separate disciplines? I mean, when you talk about people like Gandhi and, and you know, Roosevelt and Lee Duan, I mean, presumably in order for them to get to the positions that they had, they had to also be adept at kind of domestic politics. Let's think about empathy in... By separating it out, there's emotional empathy where I feel your pain. Mm -hmm. And then there's mental empathy, we could say, 
where you're able to get into the mind of someone else. Obviously, it's best if a leader has both types of empathy. But the kinds of people I focused on in these books were those with mental empathy, the ones who could think like others. And that's one of the hardest things that humans can do. I'd say there are probably three hardest challenges that humans struggle with, and one of them is the ability to think like others. Another is understanding causation, and probably the third is attaining wisdom. In these two books, I looked at the problem of getting into someone else's mind, so the more of the mental empathy side. Mm -hmm. Strategic empathy is one type of mental empathy. It's about discerning the underlying drivers and constraints of someone else, really figuring out what motivates that person, not what they want to do, but why they want to do those things in the first place. In domestic politics, you have to have both those skills if you want to be really successful. It helps to be strong on understanding how other people think. But if you're a compassionate leader, <laughs> if you want to actually make life better for others, then some emotional empathy would be essential. And I, I, I just want to say one more thing. I think most of our, or at least many of our political leaders are clever. So few are wise. And if we could just somehow test for emotional empathy, that would be that would give us uh, much better leadership. Well, do you think, I mean, with respect to international relations, it's tougher simply because the folks who we're trying to empathize with are so radically different, right? So, you know, if you think about Roosevelt trying to figure out Hitler or, you know, Stalin trying to figure out Hitler or the, you know, the Vietnamese trying to figure out the Americans, the fact that they're so far removed from the, the concerns of the others that they're thinking about that it requires sort of an extra dose or an extra layer of empathy. I think it requires pattern break analysis. <laughs> You've set me up perfectly for explaining the basic concept in a sense of the enemy. Can I, can I lay that out? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's complicated. And after writing the book and trying to lay out exactly what this pattern break analysis means. And to I, be clear, this yeah, is the book uh, in a sense, sense of the, the enemy. enemy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I found that even very, very close readers and smart readers when they reviewed it, they didn't quite get it, which means it's on me. It's, I failed to, to make it as clear as I could have. So I've come up with a, uh, an analogy, I think, that, or a metaphor that might, might help. So let me try this out on you. All right. Let's say that tonight you go home and you discover that you've won the $100 million lotto jackpot. Tax-free. It's all yours. That is a pattern-breaking moment. It's a dramatic change in circumstances that's going to have serious long-term consequences for your life. I call those kinds of completely unexpected exogenous shocks. It's not something that you had any control over, except that maybe you bought the lottery ticket. But the fact that you won the, the lotto is not a, an event you had control over, but you're going to have to respond to it. And how you respond to this pattern-breaking event is going to tell us a lot about what really drives you. The leaders who understood their enemies best are the ones who focused on someone's behavior around those pattern-breaking moments. The confusion came when the people who read the book thought that the person's behavior had to change. Your behavior could change, or it could be completely different after this pattern-breaking moment. What matters is not the change, but how you behave around that moment. So, for example, will you quit your job? Will you 
retire from Berkeley and go off to the Riviera, uh, that would tell us one thing. In, in my own case, if I won the lotto, I, well, I'm not sure if I would quit my job, but I would definitely keep researching and writing about international history because it's what I love. Mm -hmm. And the fact that my behavior did not change would tell you a lot about what really motivates me and what drives me. So in the international conflict scenarios, the leaders, when we, when we studied their behavior around pattern-breaking events, they learned a lot about what their enemies were, were driving at. Does that make sense? Well, so, I mean, towards the end of the book, you talk about Ray Kurzweil, the idea of, you know, pattern recognition, right? So, you know, and whether we're talking about data science or, you know, any other kind of pattern recognition, certainly in the social sciences, we're all trying to build models, right? And then, you know, when we have a model and everything seems to be in accord with the model, everything's, you know, clicking along just fine until, you know, we see some anomaly, right? And then that anomaly causes us to rethink our, our, our model. But I think what you're saying is that, well, you know, if there's some new event that comes along that was outside of our training data, okay, that's where we're going to learn the most, right? We're not going to learn a lot if we see the same inputs over and over and over again. But it's when we see some radically new input, then that's going to tell us whether the, you know, it's either going to strengthen our model or it's going to force us to revisit our model. Let's take an example. How about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster? Mm -hmm. That's one that was definitely not something Gorbachev wanted, mm -hmm. but it was a shock that he had to respond to. And the question at the time was, is he just the same old type of Soviet leader who would conceal everything? Oh, there's no problem here, nothing to worry about. Or was he real? Was he for real when he talked about reform, glasnost and perestroika? And how he behaved around that pattern-breaking moment of the Chernobyl disaster is that he did something completely different. And what he did was to invite American medical experts into the Soviet Union. This was a radical step uh, because he knew he needed their, their help. And he also admitted to the entire world what had happened. It was very, very new. But if his behavior had been the same as, the, as former Soviet leaders, you know, that would also tell us something. It would reveal much about what he's really like. So his behavior around that pattern-breaking moment was key. Is that so? I'm saying you're saying that if you're not really a good strategic, empathic yeah. leader, you would just say same old, same old. You, you would double down on your your model and say this. There's nothing new here. This isn't telling us anything. You know, if it looks different, it's just it's an exception. It's a it's a bump in the road. It doesn't represent any kind of um, problem with our underlying model. And what you want to do is really focus on on these key moments. And mm -hmm. so here's the problem. When we try to assess how, how someone else is thinking, we tend to fall into the great mass approach where we just gather up all the information possible. And then you drown in that ocean of too much information. Other people say, okay, we just need a thin slice of information. We need to find two seconds, as some studies have done. You know, they did these studies of college professors where students were asked to look at them and rate them based on just a two-second video. And it turned out that sometimes they could get a good sense of whether that person was a good teacher or not. But the thin slice can often be the wrong slice and really lead you astray. You might be latching onto something that's not relevant. So the key is not to get the great mass or the thin slice, but the right chunk. Mm -hmm. Pattern break analysis, I think, has helped people to get the right chunk by focusing in on this particular set of information, the behavior around the pattern break. So look, if we were running experiments, what we would do is we would say, okay, here's, here's our model. 
let's design some stress tests, right? Let's try to figure out, like, if you know, if you're building a bridge and you think it's going to stand, you're going to go and try and find the weakest link and exert some pressure to see if it's actually going to hold up. These pattern breaks are not necessarily exogenously induced, right, by the adversaries, but rather are, you know, arise naturally in some ways. But do you think, do the strategic decision makers have in their head what would an experiment look like so that when these events happen, they're they're prepared to say, okay, this is really going to tell us something. Like Because that would be the test of whether or not this pattern break idea is is a sensible one. You know, can you anticipate ahead of time, right, what sorts of things would represent true stress tests and what sorts of things wouldn't really tell you anything? Okay, you have to start with a question. And most of the time, the leaders I looked at, they had a question in mind, like like I mentioned about Gorbachev, is was he for real? Was he a real reformer? Or Hitler, for example. Was he really serious about the things he wrote in Mein Kampf, or was it just for public consumption? Was it a way of whipping up the masses and and working his way into power by playing on people's hatreds and prejudices? If you start with a question, what is this leader really all about? The behavior around the pen and break helps to answer that question. There's so many other moments that we focus on that don't tell us that. They just can't. The exogenous shock is important because it's not something that the leader themselves induced. They have to respond to it. It's about how people respond. And you can see this in our own lives too often. How we respond to the stress tests in life tell us a lot about you. Now, those are often crises. A pattern-breaking moment doesn't have to be a crisis. Like winning a, the lottery is not a crisis. Uh, it's just uh, a shock something dramatic and unexpected with, with long-term implications. So, so start with a question is, is my well, answer. Well, okay, yeah. so mm-hmm. let's, let's start with the question of Putin, right? So there are a lot of different models around Putin. I mean, one is that, you know, he's just trying to maximize his power, his internal power, and, you know, there's another one that's like, okay, he has this vision of making Russia great again. Okay, there's another that he's just, you know, dying gasps of glory-seeking and so forth. And so what is it about the decisions that we see being made that would help us to get a better sense of what Putin's all about? I mean, some people would probably say that that's not the relevant question, right? Like nobody cares what he's all about. That presupposes that he has some constant set of preferences. uh, And they might argue, well, you know, he's just kind of making it up as he goes along, right? And just, you know, his, his agenda is continuously changing. Is the invasion of the Ukraine a, a pattern break, or is it just a something that's consistent with what we would expect? No, it's not because Putin initiated that. It's something that was under his control. But there was a pattern-breaking moment in 2014, the Maidan uprising, this popular protest against a pro-Russia-leaning leader in Ukraine, and the people rose up and threw him out. They didn't want that kind of closeness. They wanted closer ties with the West. That's when Putin realized, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose influence Mm -hmm. in Kyiv. And he didn't want that, understandably. And then when we see his behavior around that pattern break moment, that's when he moves into Crimea, seizes Crimea, and also begins the move into the Donbass region. 
So that's the, the time when we can look and see, oh, what's this guy really about? What is it he really wants? It's around a pattern-breaking moment where he had to respond to something. Do you think that the decision-makers in the West made the proper inference from that pattern break at the time? Depends on <laughs> whom we're talking about. Uh, I'm sure some did, but that's... Greg, that's too big a question. We have a vast intelligence apparatus. We have political leaders. Uh, yeah. You have to name name the ones. And <laughs> well, well, well. That's see that that that's also one of the things that I found difficult to understand when you talk about strategic empathy. I mean, you, 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 there was an example where you talk about you know uh, Stresemann, right? It was for me. I didn't really know much about him before I, I read the book, and he's trying to figure out kind of what the what do the Soviets want, but there's bunch of different folks within the Soviet regime who seem to have kind of different agendas, right? There's the, the common turn and then there's the Soviet government and so forth. And so we have a tendency to think of countries as unified actors, right? When we're viewing them from the outside, right? Even though when we're talking about our own country, right? you know, we, we're aware of all the complexities and all of the different agendas. So is empathy also not just about understanding the motivations of the individual actors, but also kind of understanding the, the calculus and the rules of the game that they're playing? I think this method is best when applied to individuals. Mm -hmm. You're right when you say there are always factions within regimes. So in dictatorships, if you really do have someone who's largely in control, who is the ultimate decision maker and can squash others... Uh, within the regime, like, say, a Stalin, uh, then it's very helpful. When you have a more complicated system and there are all kinds of inputs, you've got to take this method and apply it to the key individuals in that regime. So, you know, the common turn, for example, was not a decision-making body. Mm -hmm. They were following the dictates of, of Stalin. He would tell them what to do and they carried it out. The West had to look at that and say, oh, well, do they represent the actual thinking of the at the very top, uh, that's a little harder. So they needed to focus in on what it was that the man who was giving them the instructions, what he really wanted. And you talk about historians in many ways as they're kind of like detectives, right? They're kind of looking back on situations uh, and kind of, you know, looking at the, the pieces of evidence <laughs> that are left behind mm -hmm. and trying to kind of reverse engineer, reverse engineer the story. So how do you prevent yourself from falling prey to, to hindsight bias, right? What are some of the techniques that you can use to try to make sure that your explanations are robust? This goes into the blunder book, I'd say, uh, where we talk, I talk about cognition traps. And the most important thing is being cognizant of the cognition traps, having a, a checklist. Uh, what I tried to do is identify the most prevalent and pernicious cognition traps or rigid mindsets that we fall into, hindsight bias being one of them, and give examples of it and then shorthand mnemonic devices that would allow us to remember. So really, you could just open up to the table of contents mm -hmm. and run down that, that list of chapter titles, which would be, you know, flat view or curalism or mm -hmm. causation confusion, and ask yourself, am I really guilty of this? And some leaders do that. We can see it. Maybe they don't do it as explicitly or consciously, but we can see in their in their diaries and their in the records of their conversations with, let's say, a president and the cabinet, we can see how they're thinking through these things and asking, could this be a case of confusing the causes here? And uh, the more conscious we can be of the 
common rigid mindsets that we fall into, the better we'll be at avoiding them. Well, when you talk about some of the things that in American kind of military and foreign relations history that could fall into the general descriptor of, you know, blunders, right? You talk a bit about our involvement in, in Vietnam and some of the decisions that McNamara made, for instance, that could be called blunders. You talk about Iraq. I mean, you could have a whole book on <laughs> I mean, actually, I spent a whole chapter on it, yeah. Yeah, but the, but the book was, what, 2008? Mm-hmm, <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. at the time you didn't realize there was going to be another, mm-hmm. you know, 10 more years of blunders. But, you know, I mean, a cynic would say these aren't blunders, right? All of this was played out exactly according to plan. Nobody could be this stupid, right? I mean, you know, there, this had to have been less... There are political interests that that need to be satisfied. There's, uh, you know, political theater that needs to be played out. And there's no way that the people who run the world's largest and most powerful country could, you know, fall into these simple traps that we teach people in first year of business school, right? There's no way this could happen. I mean, how can you tell the difference between there is somebody, I forget what rule, what law it was, whenever you're tempted to attribute something to bad behavior, you should first explore stupidity as a theory, right? You see, I think you seem to be in alignment with that. How can we prove that this is sort of a blunder or, you know, mistake? Okay. First, I should tell you that when I was much younger, I spent a year on a fellowship through the Council on Foreign Relations at the State Department's policy planning staff. Mm -hmm. And at the end of my year there, they took me out to lunch and one of the people there said, well, Zach, You've now had a year to see how U.S. foreign policy is actually made at a very high level. So for God's sake, don't tell anyone about it. <laughs> uh, the subtitle of the Blunder book, and by the way, <laughs> this book grew out of, uh, in part, my year uh, at the State Department. The subtitle is Why Smart People Make Bad Decisions. And what I define, the way I define a blunder is not just a mistake, but as a solution that makes matters worse. So I'm focused on those times when people genuinely wanted to solve a problem and they ended up shooting themselves in the foot. Not cases when people were, it was pure greed or Machiavellian power grabs and those kinds of things happen all the time. And there's an enormous amount of uh, literature on it, but I was interested in What happens when people really do want to solve a problem and they end up screwing things up so much uh, more horrifically than they could have imagined? Why does that happen? So the examples in Blunder are all about that. And those happen far more often than you would think. I mean, we like, I think it's easy to say, oh, they're just stupid. But these are very smart people, highly educated, thoughtful in positions of leadership and not all, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> with certain notable exceptions. But uh, on the whole, certainly the people that I focused on, uh, someone like, say, Jeffrey Sachs, mm-hmm. uh, a brilliant economist, even people like that can screw up by falling into these, these uh, mental traps. Mm-hmm. So we've got to expose them. Yeah, but, I mean, to the extent that we're always kind of fighting the, the last war, it seems like, you know, we can read these case studies of blunders and say, oh, I'm, I'm never going to make that blunder <laughs> and, then, you know, proceed to make a whole new set of, of blunders. Is there, is, is there a way to kind of teach people 
blunder avoidance strategies that don't require the specificity of, of knowing exactly what blunder you're falling. In other words, if I learn blunders one through 10, is there a way that I can extrapolate in a way that will allow me to avoid blunders 11 through 20? Is there a general blunderology that I can, <laughs> you know, that I can learn? I like the, the metaphor that the mind is a, more a muscle than a computer mm-hmm. and that the more you exercise it, the more agile it becomes. I think that's true in a lot of ways. And so the mere working of your mind to be cognizant and conscious of blunders 1 through 10 is going to help you to avoid blunders 11 through 20. And there are really are categories that we fall into. It's not like you are constantly doing some new type of blunder. I think there really are these, these patterns of mistaken thinking and rigid mindsets that we fall into. And once you get more accustomed to understanding them, you start spotting them everywhere. I mean, I, I could give you some examples like uh, number worship is a common, mm-hmm. a rigid mindset where we get seduced by just raw numbers. They have some strange hypnotic effect on us. When someone trots out a lot of numbers, we think, oh, okay, they must know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. McNamara did this when he was Secretary of Defense uh, over Vietnam, and a lot of reporters were cowed by this. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened in Afghanistan. We had these uh, big roles that showed uh, soldiers enlisted and enrolled in the Afghan National Army. And now we know from the inspector general that these were ghost soldiers. People were just putting names on a list and gathering money and the money was being, you know, going into people's pockets, not to pay soldiers. But the fact that we kept trotting out these numbers and people would say, oh, look how well we're doing or kill ratios and so on. Uh, we keep falling into the same types of rigid mindsets. So the answer to your question is twofold. One, there aren't as many categories as you might think. Mm-hmm. And two, the more we focus on these and, and develop our minds to be agile, the more we'll spot them and be uh, less likely to fall into them. But it seems like, you know, for every mistake that you look at, in history, there's there's always people who were kind of pointing it out, right? I mean, if you look at what we did in Iraq, right, where we attempted to do nation building, right? I mean, there are plenty of political scientists who are saying, like, this is crazy. And there are plenty of economists who are saying this is misguided. And there are plenty of people, even in the military on the ground, who are disagreeing w- with the policies. So, so it's not, it's not ignorance, right? It's not... Right. A lack of knowledge. It's it's not even the absence of these perspectives that, that leads to these mistakes. It's something about the process which eliminates any kind of checks and balances on, on these blunders, right? So, I think you're referring to groupthink as one type of process, yeah. yeah? Yeah. Is that what you mean? And other political processes? Yeah, and something that maybe insulates the decision makers from the kind of feedback that might lead them to course correct or to at least ask some additional questions before they proceed. Um, is And I'm wondering if, the, if there's anything specifically in, say, foreign policy or in the military that, you know, makes this more likely than in other domains like sports and, and business, where there's presumably more competition. Right? I think it was, you know, Charles Tilley talked about how, you know, competition among nation states kind of sharpened military technology and so forth. Is there is there something about being a hegemon like the United States that, that kind of insulates us from 
kind of the, the, the feedback that we might otherwise get uh, that would cause us to kind of maintain our sharp edge? Maybe, Greg, maybe. But uh, I tend to think that we commit these kinds of blunders in all realms, from international relations to romantic relations. I mean, I think there's there's just no limit to, there's no way of saying that the power of the U.S. has made it uh, more susceptible to blunders. I think you can find them all over. Or they're just more expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think when they blunder, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, mm-hmm. the ramifications are are far more disastrous. But I have a lot of students who are ex-military, and they're they're among my best students. I mean, they seem to be very open to feedback, very interested in asking a lot of questions. You know, I've been very impressed yes. with the the level of thoughtfulness and insight that you see in the American military, right? It's surprising to a lot of people. And so I want to know a little bit about what it's like to teach soldiers, right? What it's like, what's the, the curriculum like for this type of educational institution? And having spent some time in the foreign policy world, is foreign policy in some ways different from the military in terms of how it's it's taught and how it's it's thought of? Well, you're asking about organizational culture. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right about the military. Everyone I've dealt with has been, at least the, the officers I teach, are typically interested in feedback and lessons learned. And that's a big part of training mm-hmm. is that we try to get everyone to, to really reflect on what has gone wrong. And there's an openness to that. I, I've also been surprised at how open people are to wanting to correct because for exactly the same reason we were just discussing, the consequences are so devastating. We're talking about people's lives, you know, and Americans and others. When the U.S. screws up militarily and in foreign policy, it could mean the deaths of thousands or millions. In the case of Vietnam, we estimate about three million people died in a war that was not well handled. As for the foreign policy establishment and State Department, I was only there for one year, uh, and uh, I don't think we can make such a sweeping statement as to say that there's an organizational problem that keeps them from thinking sensibly. Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot more to do with the people that are in place and their their openness. Political scientists or IR scholars have a term for this, or the political psychology folks call it cognitive closure, which is just a fancy way of of saying having a closed mind. And... uh, one of the cognition traps I talk about in Blunder is infomania, meaning an obsessive relationship to information. And I talk about two different types of infomaniacs, the infomisers, the people who really hoard information and don't share it with others. You get that in a lot of cultures, and I have seen that in the foreign policy establishment, where people get protective of their turf. Mm-hmm. This is true in many organizations, and they're afraid to share information because they they want to advance their own careers. There are careerist reasons why they do that, and then it ends up leading to a blunder. Mm-hmm. And then there's another type, the infovoiders, people who really don't want to hear and know about solutions to problems that others are doing. They just discount it, partly out of hubris, partly out of fear. Those are some of the worst, worst blunders that come from that. I, I feel it very strongly that we should never be blocking ourselves from information. Mm-hmm. That is a almost guarantee that a blunder will follow. I mean, it's a pretty natural thing. I mean, people do it in their daily lives, right? You know, you get the, the 
statement from the broker comes in, <laughs> you know, you don't want to open that. Right? It's not, you know, wait until it's better news, then you'll open it. The one that I found very powerful, which I think was a nice segue into the second book, was this idea of, you know, mirror imaging, kind of imagining that others are like yourselves or imagining that the leaders of other nations have the same concerns as the, the leaders of your of your own nation. And I was wondering if your latest book that you're working on right now, it talks specifically about American kind of foreign policy. Could you talk a bit about that? What could you say about, in general, American foreign policy? You know, are there characteristics of it that you think have been kind of consistently prone to blunder, at least in the kind of 20th century? Are there, is there any characteristics? And if so, what would be the, presumably what would be the root cause or what would be the, the, the justification for those flaws? In a word, I'd say it's overreach. Mm-hmm. There's been a tendency after the World War II greatest generation, in quotes, after that, there was much more of a push to do way more. As American power became extreme globally, there was a a tendency to want to do more than than we really could. And I think that's how you get Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya. You can go down the list. But it wasn't always that way. There were many cases early on during the Second World War and the early post-war years when American leaders really were much more reluctant to use American force and more conscious of the limits of American power. Take, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were those who wanted to push Kennedy to start or risk a nuclear war. And he understood that American power had to have its limits. And he came up with a different strategy of quarantining Cuba and encouraging through negotiations and backdoor diplomacy a deal with the Soviets so that we could uh, avoid an overreach. Uh, you can see that in the Chinese Civil War after World War II. There were those in the American military who wanted to intervene. And Truman and Secretary of State George Marshall and George Kennan and the policy planning staff director, they all thought that was insane because the U.S. didn't have that much power to get involved in a Chinese civil war. And they had to put, had to tamp down the military's enthusiasm for something that would have been clear overreach. But then that gets lost. And... As the decades pass, the lessons of the limits of American power are are lost, and so much of American policy has been trying to do too much, such as nation building. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there, there's a sense that there was a an establishment, right? So the Dulles brothers, and there were people that were in this foreign policy world, and they made kind of careers out of it. You get the sense that that's not something that exists anymore. I mean, that there are professors that'll come in and get involved and then, you know, go back to the academy and there's a lot of turnover and and there's folks that are brought in for, you know, political reasons and and so forth. One would think that having an establishment like that would make them fall prey to groupthink, but it also allows for the generation of some kind of domain-specific knowledge. Is, you know, having some kind of foreign policy elite generally going to lead to better decision-making, or is, is it more likely to lead to groupthink? I don't think that's what we should focus on. I think putting people in a category, like, say, 
we shouldn't have generals working on foreign policy and or we shouldn't have this type of person on elite or any type of category. I don't think the problem is the category. Mm -hmm. It's about the individual and their mindset. Are they open to challenging assumptions? That's what's lacking. I think when we get uh, diversity of opinion and people with different experiences, that usually helps. I think you, you know there are plenty of studies that suggest that people with a diverse background will, when you get a group together that's, that's diverse, that helps to spur creativity and challenging of assumptions. But we have to do so much more work. We've got to be more conscious of, of our mental habits. That's what I'm trying to get people to focus on. Mm -hmm. Now, one of my favorite blunders that you talk about is, is cause fusion, right? But I think that's a problem that exists almost in, in every domain. In fact, a lot of the examples you pointed to were from the, the kind of, you know, medical domain and how it took centuries for people to <laughs> figure mm -hmm. out that, you know, a lot of these tropical diseases and, and were not caused by the bad air, right? right? And, and so forth. And a lot of mental diseases were not due to bad parenting mm -hmm. and other sorts of things. So how can historians play a role in helping us to understand causation better? Okay, so, so first, cause fusion is uh, a shortened version of causation confusion. Uh -huh. And it is cause-fusing. Because I always think that, you know, when you think about causation, the word means a lot of different things, right? So in the law has an idea of what causation is, right? When you do regression, you know, you sometimes slip into the language of causation or experimentation. You understand natural sciences. But, you know, historians have a peculiar relationship to, to causation. How can historians kind of help clarify our understanding of, of causation in kind of social and political offense? I think through stories. I think we really learn best through stories. And take, for example, the, the one you mentioned of malaria, malaria, bad air. The Romans thought that this disease was caused by the swamps, exposure to swamps. And so they drained all these swamps. And that wasn't the cause of it malaria. It did work, though. That's the thing. That's not the blunder. It's what's interesting. You know, it was being caused by a parasite on a mosquito, and the mosquitoes hung out in, in the swamps. What I've tried to show here through these stories is that uh, we have this idea that uh, correlation does not equal causation. And that's such a true but uh, a really shallow, superficial understanding of the problem. When you look deeper, you can see what's actually happening in these problems of confusion over the causes of complex events. And one type is where we confuse the, the many factors, the, the link in a chain of causation. A leads to B to C, you know, the parasite to the mosquito to the swamp to the exposure to the sting and so on. We get stuck on a single cause and we focus all our attention on that. I give an example of beta carotene when in nutritional science they said, why do vegetables make us healthy. Mm -hmm. And the scientists isolated beta-carotene. And they said, okay, well, let's extract that and we'll give it to people. And that will reduce the risk of cancer because that's what seems to be happening when people have a good, healthy diet of, of vegetables. And in fact, the rate of cancer went up when people were taking extra beta-carotene because it was just one, one link in a complex chain that had to deal with all the other foods we eat and the digestion process and so on. You couldn't extract that one thing. We get confused about complex events because there are so many steps in a complex process, you can't 
always isolate just one factor. And the sad part in the malaria example is that while the Romans weren't wrong to drain the swamps, yeah, it was a correlation and it did work, the real problem came in that the mindset got stuck and everybody thought it's bad air that causes diseases. And it took a millennia before someone said, hey, you know what? A lot of these diseases we're suffering from, like cholera, are waterborne and uh, they could isolate it and find out what's going on, and yet no one paid any attention. And it took decades longer after these discoveries for people to catch up and say, oh, wait a minute, they were right in the 1850s when they discovered this. Uh, but we overlooked it because we were still stuck in the malaria, the bad air problem, that mindset. And so what happens is a, a fixation on an old way of thinking and a, a closure of the mind and unwillingness to... Uh, to challenge what we've been told. I think that historians can have a lot of impact by bringing out the stories of how we got stuck. Mm -hmm. And I think that can help unstick us. Now, there are a lot of people in the social sciences who think that the path out of confusion lies in data, right? And if we just collect enough data and, you know, we, we can create some mm -hmm. quantitative models that will mm -hmm. help us to kind of predict better? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're trying to teach these military officers to make better decisions. And a big part of that is to make better predictions, right, about kind of what they're going to encounter and what will happen when they make certain choices and so forth. You know, is this a positive development, the, the idea, that, hey, maybe we can create a military science. Maybe we can create a, a political science that's, that's built on quantitative tools, data science, machine learning, you know, all the rest. Big data has a role, <laughs> but it's a type of number worship. Mm -hmm. People have got, gotten totally carried away with what it can tell us. And usually the reason is it leaves out the human factor. Take, for example, polls, the seduction of, we've, I mean, we've seen in election after election how wrong the polls are. And that's because they're dealing with humans mm -hmm. and they forget that humans lie. <laughs> Humans lie sometimes, and sometimes not intentionally. Sometimes they lie to themselves. They convince themselves of things that are not true, that they will vote for someone that they never would, or they're embarrassed to say whom they will vote for. Anytime you're dealing with humans and numbers, you have to be much more circumspect. And our number worship has led us astray, like I mentioned, in Afghanistan and Vietnam and uh, in our elections. It's ridiculous, I think to overvalue big data at the expense of human behavior. Mm -hmm. So we look at what's happening right now in, as we're speaking here today, we have the Soviets, uh, I almost said Soviets. <laughs> I said, actually, I, was <laughs> I do it too sometimes. I, I remember someone was talking, uh, called them, I think it was Biden actually might have referenced <laughs> the, about the Soviets. I think so. Um, you wonder but, if it's intentional. <laughs> but, well, there's certainly some of them, they're using some Soviet weapons and they're certainly mm -hmm. using kind of Soviet strategies to some extent. But is there anything that we're getting wrong? And when we say we, that's another thing that's that's very difficult because we get everything through the filter of the, the news media. And so we don't really know what the decision makers are, are thinking. We, we only know what we're being told or, you know, what's being interpreted by journalists. But do you think that there's there's anything 
that we're getting fundamentally wrong right now in the the European sphere? Sure. Obviously, I have no insider information about how the top decision makers are thinking or or from the European side either. But I, th I think we can surmise that there is a misreading of Putin that's been going on for a long time. There's a standard Western narrative that he's either crazy or he's losing badly. He's so grossly miscalculated. But that doesn't look at it from his perspective. There are many ways in which he could see his actions as being perfectly rational and sensible. Mm -hmm. From our perspective, the last thing he would have wanted to do was to energize NATO, push Finland and Sweden into the alliance, really unify a Western alliance against him and, and wreck his economy from these sanctions. But from his perspective, it could look very, very different. He could think, if he gets at the end of this, a pledge from Ukraine not to join NATO, that's a win. Mm -hmm. Or if he gets uh, them not to join the EU, or if he gets Ukrainian neutrality, or if he breaks off and gets some control over eastern Ukraine, that's a win. Or if he gets not one inch of Ukrainian territory, but he withdraws, and the West is left having to spend billions on reconstruction and divert its resources into that, that's a win. If it allows him this war to strengthen his position at home, uh, root out domestic opposition, crack down on the last vestiges of, of free media, all of that he could see as a win. And so we don't ever try. We don't try hard enough to present to people how he might see things differently. Can I offer one historical analogy yeah. that, that I think helps here? In 1973, Egypt launched and, and other Arab states launched a surprise attack on Israel. And the Israelis and the Americans were totally taken off guard because they couldn't imagine Sadat uh, launching a war that he knew he would lose. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? But from his perspective, it was very different. He didn't have to win that war in order to come out stronger because what he did was restore Arab pride after the horrible defeat in 1967, Arab pride was wounded, and this made people feel uh, strong again. And then his domestic approval went way up, and it solidified his position at home. So even uh, a stalemate or a military loss in that war was still a victory for him. But the West couldn't see it that way. They just weren't able to put themselves in that mind. We see that all the time. For, you know, I talk about Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction. You know, mm -hmm. If he had nothing to hide, why wouldn't he let inspectors in? Because he had nothing to hide, and that's what he needed to hide, that he had nothing, because he didn't want to be exposed as weak and uh, have people see that he didn't have nuclear weapons. Totally different way of looking at the problem. Well, do you think that, that other countries similarly misjudge the United States, right? Because, I mean, we find it difficult to understand why a leader would do something that benefits himself, but doesn't, you know, benefit the country. Maybe people looking at the United States, they don't understand the extent to which the public opinion matters and the public perception matters. I mean, I find it difficult to understand how some of the policies that the United States has pursued make any sense, except in the light of 
the public and how the public perceives things and how the public looks at everything through the lens of domestic politics. You have something in mind, I think. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, the, the idea that Iraq and, and Afghanistan are environments that are very different and Americans don't understand why you can't just have a you know, presidential election and, and you know, problem solved, right? I mean, they, they, they find that very puzzling. So the example I was remembering from the book was, I believe, some American soldiers who went into, it may have been Ambar or Fallujah, I forget what it was, and they just, or no, it was Afghanistan, actually. It was Afghanistan, yeah. yeah. And they yeah. said, well, you know, you just got to obey the law right, without realizing the history that, hey, this mm -hmm. guy that was appointed as the... Uh, the chief of the region, you know, he, there were a lot of... He was a communist, right? There was a lot of history there. Right. Yeah. Right. And I've heard other stories about how where, where soldiers would go into Afghanistan and, you know, if somebody could speak English, then they could pretty much drive the conversation and say, oh, that guy over there, he's Taliban, when in fact the speaker just wanted his land, right? And so it's like, all right, Americans are like, where? Where's the Taliban? Let's, you know, let's... And so they didn't have the tools that would help them to understand the local conflicts and the history of disputes and the agendas of the people on the ground. And we can't blame the soldiers on the ground. I mean, it's not their fault for not knowing the history of a particular mm -hmm. region of Afghanistan, but... Well, to know, but you have, they have to know that there is a history. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that they're not just, it's not Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that has to come from the top. I mean, that mm -hmm. the leadership has to... And then to be fair, I don't think the military expected to be put in that role, right? They thought they were going to go in and they're going to do this operation and then get out. So they had to kind of do it on the fly. But why wouldn't they seek out expertise, right? And international lawyers are not the folks that really understand, you know. No, what you need Afghani is cultural politics. anthropologists. Yeah. And there was some of that early on. And it was subjected to by a lot of groups, but especially the American Anthropological Association. They didn't want uh, academics embedded with the military and felt this was a misuse of, of their skills and knowledge. And I think that has not been to anyone's benefit. Mm -hmm. I think taking away knowledge, info-misering and info-voiding are usually devastating. And I think I think with the CIA had, what, like one Dari speaker on the payroll? Yeah, or? probably. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What we had in World War II was a really interesting counterexample. You had German-speaking refugees mm -hmm. and academics. They were part of the Frankfurt School. Mm -hmm. And they were recruited into an early intelligence agency. It wasn't this, There was no CIA at this time. But there was um, an Office of War Information mm -hmm. and a bureaus of research that, that tried to analyze what was happening. And they offered such remarkably thoughtful, probing analysis of what, how German society worked and where the power centers were, who mattered, the elites, the, the industrialists, who, who else, what their roles were. Their analysis was so helpful because it countered what the military was thinking and what the political leadership was thinking, and they turned out to be right repeatedly. You can now read their actual, the records of the reports that they wrote, and it's revealing. We didn't have that in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and we would have benefited from that tremendously. Yeah. So we, we need to find ways to get back to that. But oftentimes when you consult 
people who are experts. They also have, you know, they, have, they have they have a they have skin in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So with yeah. Chalabi, right, for instance, yeah. with, with Iraq, yeah. you know, he's, right. he's got an agenda. That's right. You have to be very careful about the people you <laughs> you choose, uh-huh. and you've got to be balancing them and always getting differing opinions. So figure out who's most sensible here. But then you also have an example in the book about where these intelligence officers did sort of a personality analysis. I think it was of Hitler. That's right. And it all was yes. based on his, you know, his childhood sexuality <laughs> right, and right. all this was, nonsense, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that seemed to have been the fad of the time, right? I mean, That's right. So that probably did not turn out to be a terribly useful <laughs> document. No, and they realized that that was, was really puerile and brought in a different expert. Oddly enough, it was the brother. They brought in uh, another Langer, the brother of William Langer, mm-hmm. who was working in the uh, Office of War Information and uh, had been part of the... Uh, he later went on to be the president of the American Historical Association, William Langer. Um, so his brother comes in and he does a better analysis. It's still limited by the thinking of the time and mm-hmm. uh, focusing too much on Hitler's sexuality as uh, a driver. Mm-hmm. The problem there, like so many, is that they focused on a single factor. When you isolate a cause, like I was saying about uh, whether it's beta carotene or uh, sexual proclivities or whatever the, the 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 myopia is, focusing on a single mono a monocausal explanation for behavior, that's not going to help you. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you create kind of strategic? Flexibility, right? I mean, I'm interested in this just from you know business perspective as well. Um, there's red teaming, right? There's all sorts of hypotheticals and scenarios you can run through. You can do the kind of scenario planning that they did at Shell and and so forth. But aren't the scenarios that you can imagine in many ways limited by the constraints on your imagination that flow from the examples you're familiar with, right? I mean, how, how can you how can you stress test your 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 beliefs without ahead of time in, in some way, uh, kind of sharpen your skills ahead of time in some way, so that when you are faced with a large scale political crisis or foreign policy event, you are less likely to fall into these traps. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I think we have to really be clear that. No one can reasonably expect a crystal ball. It's just, it's not something we can aspire to. We're, we're going to get things wrong. That's okay. What All we're talking about is upping our game. We're trying to improve, knowing that we're not going to get to perfect prediction every time. You can't do that. But you can understand others better in the ways we've been talking about. And one thing we've mentioned that would help is... Uh, having diverse people on your red team Mm -hmm. so that they're familiar with different examples. You bring in historians, anthropologists, there are all kinds of people with cultural knowledge when you're trying to understand an enemy that would be helpful so that you're not just focused on data and number worship. So one of the things I found really interesting was, you know, when you're talking about info voidance, right? Right. I mean, part of that is about people not wanting to kind of see the truth or not have access to the information because it's unpleasant. But another aspect of that is kind of agenda control and information control and how actors are often making decisions with imperfect information. And part of that is because the folks who work for them, who are in the business of providing them with information, 
you know, they, they manipulate access to information. And you wrote an interesting article pretty recently about Putin. And I think you, you, were, you were arguing that, you, you know, the reason why he's misinformed is because the, his advisors are afraid to tell him the truth. But you suggest maybe there's something different going on here where they are using their control of information flows to, uh, you know, at least advance their agenda or advance, do things to, to protect themselves. To what extent are leaders making decisions with, with bad information almost necessarily? It happens a lot because we think dictators are these strong men who terrify everyone else and they can do whatever they want and then everyone just cowers and gives them, tells them whatever they want to hear. It's rarely like that. This actually grows out of a, my doctoral dissertation and the first book called What Hitler Knew. Mm-hmm. And I sort of busted that myth about Hitler and that regime. What was really happening there was so much, such a high degree of manipulation of information on its way to Hitler mm-hmm. because the advisors were really trying to protect their positions and sometimes even their lives. And that made them more risk accepting, not risk averse. Mm -hmm. So they were taking real gambles by either manipulating information or suppressing it altogether. They had multiple motivations. Sometimes it was about getting one over on their rival. That was a way of protecting their position. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were epic battles within that regime. Hitler created overlapping bureaucracies. So the foreign foreign policy establishment he created was so convoluted, he had five, six or more different agencies mm-hmm. all working on the same types of issues. And so, of course, they were rivals. They hated each other. And Hitler had this social Darwinist view, you know, let them fight it out and the strongest will survive. But what that did was it, it sabotaged his own success because he wanted to get accurate information. And the process he created led to inaccurate, Mm -hmm. manipulated, and sometimes withheld information by his advisors. And the same type of thing we saw happen in Iraq under Saddam Hussein uh, is probably happening in North Korea. So with with Saddam Hussein, he was keeping his direct reports from talking to one another, right? Mm -hmm. It reminded me actually- And spying on spies to spy on the spies. And, (laughs) and, you know, it's interesting. Theranos, same thing played out, Mm. right? So Elizabeth Holmes- and her partner, they did not let the, you know, the scientific folks talk to the business folks. And, you know, they kept everything, these little little cells right. separate from one another because they didn't want everybody to figure out. Right, silos, Greg, to. silos. Yeah. You know, that's what we've got to break down. Right, exactly. And it was very intentional, but ultimately self-defeating. Mm-hmm. And I think in Putin's case, we simply don't know what he knows, but we can t- have a reasonable guess that the people around him have their own agendas for what information they bring him. And it's not just that they don't want to give him bad news. Sometimes they uh, might, in fact, want to give him bad news because it will make their rivals look bad. Maybe they want to, you know, they have other reasons to give him different types of information and suppress more information. Well, I mean, it's it's a common trope, right, where the, the peasant says, you know, if only the czar knew, right, what his, what his officers were doing out here and his tax collectors and so forth. And I mean, does does the czar know how ignorant he really is? I mean, I sometimes wonder in business whether CEOs realize that they are being spoon-fed a, a bunch of Potemkinite messages. I mean, I did some work as a consultant back in the day, and 
you know, we were brought in by a CEO to kind of go find out what the sales team was thinking because he didn't trust the CMO to tell him what the sales team was thinking. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty smart, right? <laughs> I mean, but it seems like more leaders, leaders don't always do that. They, they seem to be content to be their egos massaged and, and have their, uh, the messages uh, twisted as long as they're, I guess, told in part what they want to hear, at least to some degree, they're, they're content with that. Why, why aren't leaders more aggressive at kind of getting access to high quality information? I think it's a number of things. They don't understand the problem. They don't understand how, first, the value and power of accurate information and information that challenges what they're inclined to believe. They don't recognize how strong the incentives are for those around them to manipulate information. Can be. And uh, you're making me think of a, a story from Blunder about Moncut. Oh, yeah. The... the uh, Th- yeah, it is. That's, that's a great story. I'd never heard that before. I have to confess, it's been a long time since I've <laughs> read this. I hope I'm getting the, the details right. I'll have to double check. But uh, his father, when he was was going to be passing away and he wanted his son to take over, he decided that Mankut wasn't ready. He was still too young. And so he sent him off to, to be a monk. And Mankut spent many, many years moving through the land, getting to talk to real people in disguise. Well, when you told this story, I, I was stunned that his brother didn't have him killed. Right. Because right? if, if this were the Ottoman Empire, right? I mean, yeah, he would never have made it past the first six months as a monk, right? Or the North Korean regime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it was a different, a different uh, set of people with different incentives. And he spent that time concealing his identity so he could really get accurate information from average people mm-hmm. and that like undercover boss yeah, yeah yeah exactly and that that made sometimes leaders do that and it's rare but but it, it makes a difference but that you don't have to go in disguise there are other ways <laughs> to get people to to be incentivized to bring you accurate information uh, you have to reward that kind of behavior mm-hmm. yeah well i guess last question the military tries to get access to high quality information and we have experts in a lot of different domains, right? So in academia, we, we have a, a lot of insight. We have a lot of knowledge. And I think there was once a time in American history where academia was a fertile grounds for recruitment, you know, for the military, for uh, foreign service, for governmental positions. Uh, it's It's much less so now. Part of it's because people don't see it as a lucrative or enjoyable career, but but part of it's also because people uh, have political or ideological objections to, you know, what the military is, is doing, regardless of who's in power, right, which civilian is president. I mean, this seems to be a problem. I mean, it seems to be counterproductive at the very least if you're interested in making the world a better place. We have a cultural problem right now, and it's that we forget we often have the same shared goals. We just can't recognize it. But in very real ways, the military leaders of many types and academic, those in academia want to build a better world, a safer, more peaceful, prosperous, stable world. And if they don't talk to each other, if these groups, if you only get protests on universities and where people won't 
listen to anyone who has a different point of view, then we can't move forward to build that better world. What we need is a wiser world. And we're never going to get there if we don't actually listen to each other, even when the other side might think something that seems unpleasant, offensive, or is not what we want to hear. We have to hear it. We have to engage with it and find ways of working toward that shared goal. We don't always have shared goals, but many times we do. And one of them, I think, is to build a wiser world. Yeah. And part of that, of course, is that the military then, in the absence of those interactions, can in many ways drift away from the, the perspective that most Americans have. So there's, there's in terms of political orientation and in terms of, uh, there's been talk of cultural divides, military versus civilian and so forth. Whereas it seems that the military should be embedded and, uh, you know, integrated with, with the civilian population. Yeah, this is a serious problem, but now that we have an all volunteer force, uh, only a small percentage of the population is really directly affected. Whereas in contrast, say World War II, we had at its peak, 11 million people under arms mm. and in a country of about 130 million. So that was a huge, huge percentage of the population. And there wasn't anyone in America who didn't know someone who was in the military and directly affected by the war. But in recent years in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's a very different story. Mm. And it's not been to our, our benefit. I think there's a far too much separation and misunderstanding. I'm not saying that everyone should be joining the military. Obviously not. That's not the right role for everyone. We need a military. We need many other people to do their part in building that better world. But having a bifurcation and rigid walls where people don't talk to each other, don't live amongst each other, don't know about each other and how they think and don't hear from different points of views, that's a real danger in our society. And it's, it's going to in so many ways, uh, as we've divided in left and right, red and blue, uh, this is just absolutely fracturing civil society. And we are paying a price for it, as we've seen, and from January 6th to uh, all of the tension we have in our society today. I really think we can get past this. I'm perhaps irrationally optimistic <laughs> or hopeful, but I think there are solutions here. And one of them has to be listening to people and really forcing ourselves. It really goes back to infovoidance. If we can get over infovoidance and force ourselves to listen to those with differing points of view and have, have more exposure to different points of view, we'll do so much better. That's one of the messages, but there's many other insights in this book, Blunder, Why Smart People Make uh, Bad Decisions, and of course, uh, Sense of the Enemy, High Stakes History of Reading Your Rival's Mind. Zach, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.